0: The Buddha talked about the four sterling qualities of a beautiful human being. And they are faith, virtue, generosity, wisdom. These are the four sterling qualities of a beautiful human being. We start out with faith, all of us, in order to actually be here have quite enough faith. We have actually more faith than sometimes we give ourselves credit for. To be able to do this kind of practice, to be able to leave our family, our jobs, or whatever we've left behind is not so easy. It takes a lot of faith in ourselves, a lot of faith in our potential for awakening to be able to do this. And so this is a subject for uh, a whole other uh, Dhamma talk or Dhamma discussion. Virtue is another of the sterling qualities. And virtue has to do with uh, the qualities within us that know how to live in harmony with ourselves and with the world. And this will be the subject of my Dhamma talk this evening virtuous conduct, virtuous speech, virtuous behavior. Generosity is another of these uh, sterling qualities, and wisdom. So, with all of these work together, Sometimes one of these work as a foundation for another to arise, but definitely all are connected, all are deepened as we go through our understanding of practice and we use that understanding in the world. In a way, we can say that all of these qualities are really our noble heritage, the heritage that we... uh, rightfully acknowledge and understand within ourselves. And we, when we do this, when we understand this heritage within ourselves, then we know that that same heritage rightfully belongs to others as well. And so we develop this great respect for beginning with ourselves we pass that respect on to others. So as good human beings that we, we generally are, we're, uh, to come to a practice like this, we basically have to start out with this basic good human qualities. But we are aspiring to elevate ourselves into cultivating these qualities more deeply. And in a more refined way. Whenever we attend to these qualities with a conscious intention and a, a deepening attention, they grow. They grow in strength in our hearts. And so, therefore, they grow in our ability, in the reliability to have them accessible so that our words and our action can come from this place. The Buddha called such a person saparisa. I just, when I was studying recently, some of the texts I found that word saparisa and um, the meaning of the word was beautiful for me. It means a beautiful human being. And in a way even if we don't aspire towards Nibbana or towards total liberation, I think what's conscious in my own mind on a daily basis is this aspiration to have a good heart, to simply have a beautiful heart. And if that's all I attend to every day, then I feel very assured and very safe that even a goal that's further than that will be reached. So I try to keep it simple, this cultivation of being simply a good human being. Because this is a beauty that doesn't depend on anything outer, on any outer conditions, on physical appearance, you know, as we all are uh, growing into that age where the aches and pains of the body come out and the skin is no longer smooth. I mean, maybe not all of you, but I see that coming out in my own body. And I uh, can't see so well, can't hear so well. You know, the physical aspects of the body are growing weaker and um not as beautiful as before, as in our youth. But I do notice among my friends who are practicing that their hearts are becoming more beautiful. And by far, that is so much more important. A beautiful, a person with um, an appearance that isn't, you know, with a lovely profile and eyes that are of a certain deep color and, um, you know, a chin that's not so well sculpted because the skin doesn't have that elasticity. But when you look into that person's eyes and when you look into that person's heart, the beauty of that far, far surpasses the physical appearance. So that gives me a great consolation (laughs) about this path of practice and um, what it has to offer and that the physical appearance can go by the wayside without any worries. The outer conditions of wealth or education, something that, um, you know, of course, being in... The Western world, where most of us, when we compare ourselves to the other parts of the world, we're really at the top of the heap when we compare ourselves to third world countries. But um, as far as uh, wealth in terms of money in the bank, or how much uh, one owns as far as land, or I myself don't have much of that. But that becomes less and less uh, important. Of course, we want enough security so we won't be um, a drag on others. But wealth, education, social or career status, this inner beauty doesn't depend on that. Of course, it gives us some confidence, but that's not what we weigh that inner beauty on. Book knowledge, worldly accomplishments or possessions, but only on the trueness and the strength of these qualities in one's heart, this faith in ourselves, faith to carry out our aspirations, Uh, conviction, another word that describes faith, conviction in our path of practice that it will bring us to a place of more inner security. So virtuous conduct, sometimes we hear the word sila, which means living in harmony, living in harmony with ourselves, with others, by the careful consideration of our speech and our behavior. We pay particular attention to that in our life here at the Dharma Center so that we learn to pay more refined attention to that in the world. We learn how it affects others when we're in this kind of silent retreat. Sometimes we learn it the hard way when something harsh happens to us Maybe it wasn't by intention that someone or something happened to us in a harsh way, but we feel the harshness of it because our hearts and our minds are in a really quiet place. And so when someone speaks to us in a way that kind of stings, we see, we we come to see, oh, that I have to be careful the way I do that. And uh, a lot of times when that happens to me, at first, you know, the the mind goes out to blaming others. But then I come to see it's really important that I I refrain from doing it in that way myself because I can see how it hurts my own heart when it happens like that. Or sometimes when I'm not careful myself and I notice that... um, what I said without thinking or what I did without thinking or what I didn't do, what I refrained, I I mean, I forgot to do can hurt another, then I really feel it. I feel that agitation in my heart. Not agitation in an unwholesome sense, but a reminder that's wholesome that says, this is hurtful, this, this way of um, not being careful hurts my own heart. So when we're really careful, we have the possibility of living with no regret. And even of living with no remorse, remorse is um, in our culture it's a wholesome state of mind because we think carefully about what we did, and we see how we can do it differently in the future. But imagine being so careful that we live with less remorse or living our lives for some period of time where there's not even the necessity for remorse to arise at all in our hearts. And guilt, of course, this is a very harmful state of mind. This is an unwholesome state what some people call an unnecessary state of mind, but nevertheless, it's, it arises, and it's, it's part and parcel of what happens to us in our practice. So when we live this way carefully and with this kind of um, refinement of attention to our speech and to our actions... We live in what Upandita calls, and which is the name of his most recent book, the state of mind called beautiful. The state of mind called beautiful, where we can reflect on our hearts and not in a in a way that puffs up our so-called sense of self, but in a way that we look at our own hearts and we we see experience that beauty. And when that's experienced, it's experienced as impersonal at the time. It's experienced as impersonal because the causes and conditions of that become known to us and the effect of that, of experiencing the purity of heart, is known. So when we see when this cause and effect relationship is seen of being careful about our conduct, about our words, Uh, we see the effect of that, of the purity of heart, and it's seen just as that, the cause and conditions and the effect. And so it's realized as actually very impersonal. So there are times for all of us when we just know and there are certain times in our lives and uh, most of those times for me have come when I've been in intensive retreat like this, when I see the kilesas or the defilements that come up, the various manifestations of greed, hatred and delusion, when I come to a stronger commitment to clean up my act so to speak, as we say here in our culture, that, um, you know, the mind may for some time kind of revolve around, oh, you know, that stings and that hurts and I have an aversion, there's an aversion to to the way I do things and the way I've done things and we can get identified and personalize that and then, you know, after a while working with that There's a space around it and we see the coming and going of those mind states. And then comes, sometime comes the commitment, stronger commitment to really notice before acting and speaking, notice uh, and clearly comprehending what the mind is like and being able to refrain before it comes out in the speech, before it comes out in the behavior. I was raised in an Asian um, atmosphere, in an Asian environment, as my my parents are uh, Asian. And my mother used to say to me, to roll the words around in my mouth a hundred times before they come out. And she she would say that with her Filipino accent, you know. And because when I was younger... Um, I used to talk back to my mother, you know, and, and it might be, you know, according to many people's standards, maybe not very much, but to her it was a lot, mm-hmm. you know, and she would be, um, I mean, you just don't do that in, in our family. And so I got a lot of <laughs> on the mouth, and she would tell me, um, to roll those words around before they came out of my mouth, especially to my elders. And so I I remember that lesson, you know. um, In those days, you know, it it was okay to do that. And I appreciate those waking up moments of remembering that. So we make some conscious intention. We make some conscious choices. To do that, to be more careful. And so here we learn to pay careful attention to sila, to virtuous conduct. It's said that the proximate causes for this careful attention of sila to arise are known as the two guardians of the world, the two proximate causes for harmonious living to arise, guardians of the world. In Pali, that ancient language that the teachings of the Buddha were recorded in, these two words are called hiri and otapa. Hiri and otapa. These are the underpinnings, so to say, of this sila. And those words now i'm going to give the translation in english but many translators say that the translation in english is just the small tip of the iceberg of what they really mean and actually the translation in english can be much understood because of our own perception of what those words mean and and you'll see as i go through this. So hiri, is tra- H-I-R-I, is translated as moral shame, moral shame. So this moral shame, moral means, you know, that sila, that sense of living in harmony. When we're not living in harmony, we feel this kind of sting. And that's that Shame. It means it's a sort of waking up, an inner waking up to the fact that we are not living in harmony with uh, what's going on around us. So this moral shame, this hiri, is actually a wholesome state of mind, not the shame that's unwholesome, So it's this inner sense that our words and our behavior don't feel right. So there's a lot of mindfulness that needs to come with this. Um, So our inner sense that what we said or did, it just doesn't feel right. There's a waking up to that. This is hiri. This waking up to that is very, very wholesome. And it's also associated with humility, the ability to be humble about it, the ability to be truthful, a sense of self-truthfulness, honesty about it. It's an intuitive sense that this is hurtful, not only to others, but in Hiri, we understand that this is hurtful to myself, by myself meaning the mind stream, you know, that karmic mind stream, that this action or this, these words go into the karmic mind stream and they will surely have an effect later on, if not immediately. So being very careful about that. One of our teachers, um, one of our Abhidhamma teachers, U Nandamala in Burma, called this respect for ourselves. So I like very much this translation. It really, uh, it really goes directly to the heart of the matter, respect for ourselves. When this happens, of course, when we're harming another being by our action or our words, we see that it's not just disrespecting that other being, but we're really disrespecting ourselves first and foremost. So we see the danger in it for ourselves. We see that the effect of that um, is also that is unwholesome. The effect of that will also be unpleasant for ourselves, unwholesome. So it's respect for one's own integrity. This heari, this um, one one of the guardians of the world. So respect for oneself. And otapa. Otapa is translated as moral dread or moral fear. Well, that doesn't sound so uh, wholesome to me. Dread and fear are not uh, easily translatable to me as something wholesome, at least in our language. So... Again, one of our teachers translated that as respect for others. So, you know, how in harming others, um, how will that affect what the community and those people I love, how will it affect their lives? Because I'm a representative of my family. I'm a representative of this Dharma community and of a larger community. And when I don't respect others, I may have this inner sense of, ooh, you know, this may not reflect in a very good way on my family and on others. So I just give you an example of that. It's, it's kind of a silly example, but it's how it came up for me. Once I was in a retreat, I was a yogi, as I was the first uh, before I came here, over at the retreat center. And I was in the first half of the three-month course. And um, so doing six weeks of retreating there. And the second six weeks, I was going to be a teacher of that retreat. So when I went to that retreat, I was very exhausted, very tired. And uh, I was sitting in my seat, kind of in the middle of the women. And what happened was I was I was really tired and I couldn't hold my body up. So I, I thought, um, oh, this is not a good advertisement for the Dhamma. You know, <laughs> This uh, there was a little bit of the unwholesome kind of shame there, you know. But there was also this, uh, how will this reflect upon the the Dhamma community as a whole? And how would these people have faith in the Dhamma if they see, you know, a representative of the Dhamma like that falling asleep? I'm a little looser with myself these days, but those days I was a little more, um, you know, I had that strong sense of otapa, and so um, I did a few things, like I went to the back and and you know sat in a chair. And even then, the body was slumping, and thought, oh well, you know, people who were coming in, and so uh, would see me. So I thought of tying myself, you know, with my um, with my shawl to the back of the chair. I mean, it really got serious. So uh, just kind of an exaggerated way. This is how that sense comes up. How will it affect, how will this behavior affect those close to me? So that's not just a respect for those I I am harming or I might be harming, but it's a respect for my community, the place that I live within. So can you see the differentiation there? So... This community that we live in is as fragile as one person's unconscious act. So have we ever been in a community where one person acting unconsciously can cause a ripple through the whole community? For example, when I was in a community once, I was teaching in Australia, And um, there were some things that were stolen. It turns out that they were stolen by someone outside of the community. But that caused a ripple within the whole community. This one, it was a small, um, you know, not so small, from something from someone's purse. But that ripple that it caused in the whole community just... um, caused quite a bit of agitation. And it took a while before things settled. And uh, people began to feel unsafe. So it's really important to be careful about how, uh, what we do, how we do. It may be surprising that the Buddha's teachings encourage this kind of moral shame and moral dread with regard to wrongdoing, but we can see why. We can understand why, how it not only affects the person that is, uh, receives that speech that's harmful, that conduct that's harmful, but it also affects ourselves. It also affects our whole community. So this is not to wallow in guilt and self-recrimination or despair, that's unproductive. If that happens, it's to see that it's happening, where there's some despair about what happened, where there's guilt, where there's self-recrimination, to make that one of the experiences of mindfulness and to really see those forms of self-hatred in, in the mind, in the heart. But hiri otapa are uh, signified by a sense of wise discernment and a decision, a wise decision, a clear decision to refrain from doing that again because we feel the burning of that, we feel the sting of that in our hearts, in our minds. And so when we begin to do that again, when even we begin to do it, the intention comes, we remember the sting of that in our own hearts. And this is good, to remember that sting in a good way, in a way that wakes us up and then we say, oh no, not to do that again, to be careful of doing that again. So we don't want to make a monolith out of this, you know feeling of despair, feeling of self-recrimination, and especially guilt. We can make monoliths out of them that become solid and uh, we get identified with them. So it's said that one of the greatest gifts we can give to others is this gift of fearlessness, when we can be within a group and be very careful about what we do, what we say. Of course, here we're protected by noble silence. And thank goodness, I mean, if we said everything that was in our minds, um, this would be a hell realm, you know. We go around having feelings of irritation and aversion, and instead of using the energy to put it out there, we're using the energy to see them to see that in here. And so I'm not making any of that wrong. This is It's very wise to see what comes up. But my point is that if we said it all, it, it wouldn't be a place to practice as easily as we do here. So we give the gift of fearlessness to others by keeping our silence and by when we speak, to speak in a wise way, by being careful about our actions. So this force of wholesomeness in the mind, which is this force of being careful and um, renouncing any way that it may come out harmfully, is a training. It's a retraining. It's a training in renunciation. So Uh, Every time that we see something come up and we refrain from putting it out there, it's the beginning of letting go. It's the very beginning of being able to see it arise, to see the insubstantial nature of it, and to notice its ephemeral, dissolving nature. So it's the beginning, the very beginning of that. And that's why... It's uh, the beginning of this training towards wisdom. It begins to be more reliable so that we know that uh, if we're in a situation where it may come out in a wrong way, but we've trained over and over again to rely on this hiri otapa to come up within our hearts, we can go into any situation and know that I can rely on my heart. I can rely on the fact that I will be careful with what I say, with what I do. And maybe it doesn't happen exactly that way, but we still have a greater and greater sense, an ever-deepening sense of reliability of these guardians of the world that reside in our own hearts. Recently, a friend told me that She had an interaction where she felt hurt, and because of that hurt, she could feel the reactivity coming in her own heart and mind. And she wanted to say something in retort, you know, and and in response right away. But because she felt that, actually felt this Hiri otapa come up in her heart that respect for herself, respect for others, and she decided to wait and not not to do it then because it would come out in a stinging way. So she waited. And that waiting came from really relying on herself. She relied on herself to know that this wasn't the time. She relied on herself to know that later would be a time. And that later moment came when she was able to have her words come from a place of wisdom and compassion rather than a place of hurtfulness and not really knowing what was going to come out. The Buddha said that, I talked about this chariot to Nibbana a lot. This Nibbana is um, a far-reaching goal that really isn't so far. It can be actually quite um, accessible as uh, our venerable teacher Upandita says in, he talks about in his book, in this very life can be realized. So the Buddha talked about this magnificent chariot to Nibbana. This chariot of the eightfold noble path has hiri otapa, as its backrest. If you have this backrest, you will have something to rely on, to depend on, something on which you can sit comfortably as you travel toward your aspiration. If these qualities are weak, she or he rushes and loses mindfulness and all the dangers that ensue will come about. So this sila, this harmonious living, is encased in the three trainings that the Buddha gave his teachings through. The first is this training in virtuous conduct. This is our foundation, our baseline sila. This sila overcomes transgressive behavior. That means that unwholesome Thoughts have arisen in the mind. Unwholesome mental states have arisen in the mind. And without thinking, this unwholesome mental state accompanies or um, uh, colors our speech and our action. So it, it already comes out. It's acted out. So this transgressive behavior is what sila overcomes. This kind of transgressive uh, behavior is very strong in our karmic stream. It's a, a very strong imprint. It's a very strong seed that can bear fruit. And so when we can stop it there with, through renunciation, through our practicing of the precepts, for example, it's It stops that karmic seed, that particular karmic seed, from bearing fruit in our lives. So when unwholesome mind states are acted out through behavior or speech, that karmic uh, imprint is quite strong. The second training, is in calming or concentrating the mind, which is called samadhi. So the first training is sila, the second training is samadhi. And this samadhi overcomes the obsessiveness of mind. That means it's not yet translated into behavior, but it's known through the mind, through mindfulness, through noticing how it comes up in the mind. We may not speak or acted, but it's definitely uh, vibrationally known in some way. So when concentration is strong, the uh, kilesas are kept at bay, the defilements of the mind are kept at bay, and one begins to realize the possibility, even in a temporary way, of the purity of the mind and heart. And the third training is the training in wisdom, or panya, which overcomes the latent or dormant defilements or the, um, or the way that this may come up, up, this may emerge from the mind. Even though there are no conditions that are making them come up, when the conditions are ripe, they will come up, they will emerge from the mind. So this is the, the overview of the trainings which sila is encased in. There's sila, virtuous conduct, samadhi, the training in concentration, and panya, the training in wisdom. In the Samyutta Nikaya, a bhikkhu or a monk approached the Buddha and asked the Buddha, Let the Blessed One teach me the Dhamma in brief. And the Blessed One, the Buddha, replied, Well then, Bhikkhu, purify the very starting point of wholesome states. And what is the starting point of wholesome states? Virtue. Virtue that is well purified and view that is straight. Then when your virtue is well purified and your view straight, based upon virtue, established upon virtue, you should then develop the four establishments of mindfulness. In other words, then you should start meditating. And so that's why, uh, actually, the Venerable Vivekananda asked me to give this talk, so that we could begin our practice in a very strong way, So what does the Buddha mean by the view straight? The Buddha means understanding the laws of cause and effect, understanding that uh, wholesome conduct, wholesome states of mind produce wholesome results. Unwholesome states of mind, which uh, translate into our conduct sometimes, produce unwholesome results. This is basically the laws of cause and effect. So we understand this, and this is why we take the precepts. We take the precepts from a place of accepting our humanness with great compassion. And the Buddha gave these precepts out of compassion, not because he said, Oh, you're doing something wrong and you've got to do something right but out of great compassion saw that as human beings, it's difficult. We were born into this life with difficult states of mind, um, tormenting states of mind, which uh, we don't know how to handle sometimes. So the Buddha offered us the five precepts and the eight precepts for more renunciation that shows us that He acknowledged how hard it is to be human. So these five precepts are trainings. They're not commandments. They're not saying, thou shalt not do this and that. They're uh, bringing mindfulness into our life to notice, when are we harming ourselves? When are we harming others? And to be very, very careful. So the first training has to do panatipata-varamani-sikapadam-samadhyami, to refrain from harming any living being. And so the way that Seyedauji Upandita puts it in his book, The State of Mind Called Beautiful, it's translated this way, I will take great care to turn away and refrain from tormenting, killing, or torturing others in any way, even small way. So, uh, the second one is uh, refraining from taking what is not given. So, uh, again, I will take great care from taking what is not given, refraining from taking what is not given. I will take great care from use, uh, to use my sexual energy so that it isn't used in a harmful way, directly or indirectly. These are. This is a precept for householders. But here in retreat, we take great care so that we refrain from acting out our sexual energy in any way, so that we use it, we use this powerful energy, not saying anything wrong about this energy, but we use this powerful energy towards our practice, towards liberation. I will take great care to use my speech in a way that is not untrue, divisive, useless, or harsh. So we honor noble silence here, which greatly protects us. I will take great care to refrain from taking drugs or any kind of intoxicants that will make the mind unclear. And of course, any medicines are okay to take. So we have a commitment to harmony. We have a commitment to clarity, both of these things. So virtue in this way, in connection with the precepts, is associated with restraint and to, to notice what's happening when we're going to do anything uh, that will harm us or ourselves. Upandita would use the word cultured um, when he would refer to someone who has great sila, that he would say, this is a very cultured, this is a very refined person. When I usually, when I do bows to my teacher, teachers, when I do the bows, I'm bowing a lot not to that person as, as a person, as a self, but to their commitment to sila, to their commitment to a path of practice that has great respect for one's own karmic stream and the uh, respect for another. I was interested to relearn what all the um, kilesas are. You know, the, the... Five uh, precepts have to do with basically refraining from greed, hatred, and delusion. But knowing what the, kiles, the 16 Kilesas are helped me to see more precisely how they may be seen in our own mind stream and sometimes acted out. So I wanted to read them to you as just as a point of interest. These are the 16 Kilesas. The first is covetousness or unrighteous greed which means excessive selfishness that leads to stealing, lying or violent acquisition. The second is ill will. The third is anger. The fourth is malice. And then contempt. The sixth is domineering presumption. The seventh And eighth are envy, and then jealous, selfishness. The ninth is hypocrisy and deceit. The tenth is fraudulence. The next is obstinacy. Then rivalrousness is the twelfth. That, you know, that competitiveness that can come in Dharma practice. We're either competing with ourselves or we're competing with others. Conceitedness, arrogance, or haughtiness is the 14th. Vanity is the 15th. And the last is heedless in consideration, which means a callous lack of regard for others' welfare. These were all spelled out in, um, in, uh, in that latest book of the... Uh, Sayadaw Upandita, the state of mind called beautiful. And I was really glad to have these precisely pointed out because I began to notice, even if it was in a refined way, not it wasn't a very um, gross way, but notice that hypocrisy and deceit, which times when, you know, just kind of self-confession, when I represent myself in a way that I'm not really, that that really wasn't me, either I was being overly humble, you know or even um, stating something about myself or about how I felt about something when upon closer reflection I didn't really feel that way I was, I don't know what made me say that, maybe I just wanted to be more part of the group or for whatever motivated me It was not right. It was hypocrisy. I was misrepresenting myself. Um, And so being deceitful where others wouldn't be able to see honestly who who I was. So just seeing that more clearly. So this sila is a a beautiful form of self-honesty. And honesty in a way where this tapa is wholesome. It's like stinging in a wholesome way. Stinging, it's, it's like uh, waking up. It's maybe like, um, more clearly, it's like when you're in the darkness and somebody shines a bright light on your path or right on you, and it's, it, it hurts a little bit. It hurts the eyes and it kind of startles you and it wakes you up. So this is the the beauty of this sila with its base being hiri otapa. And then from there, when we refrain or restrain from uh, doing anything that will hurt or harm, it's a deep cultivation of compassion when you look at it in a very careful way this renunciation is compassion it's a starting point of letting go we let go because of wisdom and the result of that is more wisdom so in that moment our faith in ourselves is deepened, is strengthened. And faith in ourselves is absolutely, primally essential on the path of practice to be able to rely on our inner goodness. So this, this uh, sila is characterized as composing oneself its function is to abstain from conduct that leads to disharmony. It says it achieves the quality of blamelessness. The dangers are, by committing harmful actions and in, in speech, we will be plagued by remorse. You know, remorse is actually wholesome, but being plagued by it that's heavy. We will be plagued by self-criticism and self-blame. We risk losing the trust of others, especially the wise and virtuous and those we treasure, those we love. We face shame. We will endure future difficult times and be reborn in a state of loss. State of loss means One's mental states are rough and intractable, dense and painful. This is a state of loss. So when that inner sense of blamelessness is not there and the mind calms down, much can be seen in the mind more clearly. I remember once um, coming to a retreat and before coming I said something to my eldest daughter, which I sat with almost the whole retreat because I sat with some harsh words that I said. And um, it was hard for the mind to settle down. There was a lot of agitation. And, of course, that's what had to be worked with. It it wasn't really getting in the way. It was the practice. Um, but I always remember that. So... The net effect of leading a life of sila is there's more tranquility. It's the foundation for samadhi or concentration to arise. Virtuous conduct has non-remorse as its aim. Non-remorse in the long run has concentration, has samadhi as its benefit. Samadhi has its aim and as its benefit, wisdom. So being very careful about protecting life, not just refraining from killing, but for protecting. We see all kinds of nets around here so that we catch the bugs and bring them outside instead of killing them. Um, Being careful about What we take, if we're not sure it's ours, we we leave it there. Uh, We refrain from, of course, using our sexual energy during this time. We refrain from using words even in our uh, practice. That's why it's very important to notice exactly what's happening in our practice and report that very clearly, very precisely, I remember one time I was at a retreat in Australia. I was a a yogi, and it was my first long retreat. And at the retreat, some of the yogis in a group interview were reporting to Sayadaw Upandita, and they were saying how great their practice was. This is at the beginning of the retreat, how they could stay with the rise and fall of the abdomen a long time and sit for a long, long time and... um, of course, the Sayadaw knew this wasn't really usual, it wasn't true, and could tell that uh, from that yogi or those particular yogis that that wasn't right. And so that evening in a Dharma talk, the Sayadaw said, if you want to realize the truth, you must speak the truth. How can you realize the truth unless you're truthful? And it's not just being truthful, it's being precisely truthful. If you say that you um, sat seven hours, you must really have sat seven hours and not estimate. And we, at that time, we had to report. We sat so many hours, we walked so many hours. So I was, tried to be more careful, even to the minute, you know, tried to report. So our words make a difference you know i remember reporting sometimes when because i wasn't careful it wasn't really accurate and that later would ruffle the mind so using even in our reporting being clear concise in order to do that we have to see con- clearly concisely what's happening So these are the uh, ways of hiri and otapa and the benefits of virtue. I'd like to end with, this is a, like a poem that the Sayadaw Upandita wrote actually during that retreat many years ago in Australia. Adorned with a garland of giving, feeling joy and dignity with kind living, dwell only in states of clarity, great beauty results with integrity. Adorned with the fragrance of virtuous activity, for others a care and sensitivity, dwell only in states of contentment, a heart removed of the thorns of resentment. Adorned with the sweetness of tranquility, soft rapture from a life of simplicity. Dwell only in states of calm peace, mental turbulence and distraction all cease. Dwell only in states of peace and happiness, a mind of wise discernment and openness. The three poisons of wrong view, conceit and craving No longer hinder or cause inner tightening. Vow deeply to develop the true way. Adorned in the heart, then freedom will lay. So let's sit for just a moment.